0: Would you please join me in welcoming to the Auckland Writers Festival Dame Gaylene Preston? Right, I'm not going to lie to you, Gaylene. It's a massive life, so much of which I had no idea about when I read your book, and I thought and thought about where to start. And I suppose in the end, I've come back to Greymouth and your upbringing because. If it's true that an external landscape and environment has a part in shaping who we are, I, I want us to know what that West Coast landscape provided for you.
1: Well, Elsie, she lived with us because she had a stroke um, when she was 47. She basically had too many children and done far too much housework. <laughs>
0: this is your grandmother.
1: My grandmother, yeah. You know, I think the lives of women like Elsie are very rarely given any kind of profile. And I think I've had a profile and I've had a lot of good opportunities, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to honor mothers who have to do too much housework.
0: It's kind of impossible to read your book without feeling the presence of those powerful women in your life, Elsie, your mother Tui, your sister, your daughter, your granddaughter, and then when I think about the women that you have filmed in War Stories, Bread and Roses, Ruby and Rata, Helen Clark, can you talk about the legacy of women in terms of how it, how it has shaped your voice as a filmmaker?
1: Um, I think what shaped my voice as a filmmaker is basically outrage. Making a film is pure pleasure, but getting the money and getting, you, you can't just, make a film, you have to have the resources to make a film and you don't, and you don't make a film on your own. Um, and you, you have to, I'm a union maid, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna want to pay everybody. Um, so that energy basically means that when I'm making a film, it's gonna take a long time so I can't make a film about anything that just pops into my head. Hmm. So, outrage will fuel my voice. I'm usually speaking on behalf of other people in my work.
0: The parts of your life in Greymouth as a child seem kind of incredibly idyllic and playful. Where did that, that outrage and that drive to push and push which was very necessary, particularly in the New Zealand film industry when you began, where did that come from? Like,
1: where, where, where's it seeded in you? I was educated by a bunch of very progressive teachers at Colenso High School in Napier. So once, so once I was educated, uh, I could see that the world I was in uh, needed help. <laughs> so my film's are a crusade, really the trouble we went to to get Mr. Wrong made, it's just a basically, hang on you guys, you don't know what you're doing any more than I do, so it's my turn Uh, and I will not be quiet because I'm making this film on behalf of the hitchhikers who have not got to their destination the women in New Zealand who have set out and not arrived and their murders have never been fully investigated. So I mean, I'll make a funny film, I'll make it as entertaining as possible, I'll use as much real jeopardy as I can and make a comedy thriller that's got a self-defense course in the middle of it that, that tells you what to do if you do actually get stuck with someone wielding a knife.
0: We talk about that struggle in um, Making Mr. Wrong, which is an incredibly frustrating part of the book as you come up against obstacle after obstacle, and it sort of has to be said a lot of those obstacles take the form of men, and then within the industry. Did you feel entering the industry at the time that you did as an outsider in a very male landscape?
1: Oh, well, yeah, that, I, I mean, what we're talking Mr. Wrong was made in 1984. I came back to New Zealand in 1977. So I, I was probably one of the most experienced filmmakers in the country to make their first feature. Mm. And this was a time when everybody's feature was a first feature with a, a few notable exceptions. But basically everybody was making their first feature in 1983 because a tax, a, a tax incentive had been, Found it was for fishing boats, but it was, it, it was, <laughs> it, it was bent around to be filmed. So it basically meant that everybody was making their first feature, and I don't know. We just had enormous trouble, and I was told by somebody who had a lot of power in the situation, who who told Robin Lang, my producer, who was producing with me, uh, she was told. You will stop having all this trouble if you just get a man.: uh, What did you say? <laughs> i didn't say anything. Did that, what did she say said to Robin Lang? I don't know what she said, but basically we just carried on. You
0: were coming of age as a filmmaker alongside the New Zealand industry. You were all sort of cutting your teeth together, actually. It was such a pioneering kind of wild West and It was a period where it seemed like anything was possible and many things were also impossible. And one thing I was really curious about reading the book is how much do you think that that's changed now? What's changed and what's stayed the same?
1: I was just looking at a documentary I made about the making of Jeff Murphy's brilliant film Utu. Mm. And everybody's mucking in and there's a, Everybody's doing a job they've never done before. They're making this film with great energy and enthusiasm and there's a lack of boundaries between Māori and Parker. we We're all mates and there isn't a main road for filmmaking yet. So it was everybody in together, which I, I think now it's quite constricting I'm not sure, I think people feel well, there's a career path and you go to film school and then you come out of film school and you work for free and it's a ladder and it's not a, It's not like that. It's actually got snakes.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and I think now we're part of a bigger machine that doesn't necessarily, favor the creative. Mm. And you know, there's this idea that there's a proper way to do things. There isn't a proper way to do things. There's only your way to do things, Michelle. Mm. You know, so um, I I think we have to give ourselves a lot of permission to just go our own way. And if people don't get it, then explain it better. You've just gotta be sure you can make this film your way and everybody else is going to have to shape up.
0: I love hearing that and I think it's such an amazing sentiment. I wonder how often that's happening for people because you know, being being in the industry, you see a lot of people with remarkable ideas get knocked back again and again and then eventually give up. So I guess and this is probably a hard question to answer, what's the difference between them and you? Because you have never given up and you've really given stick when you've
1: needed to. Well, I know people who've tried and tried and tried to make a film all sorts of ways. Mm. Um, And they haven't managed and I don't know, I don't think there's any difference between them and me. I'm, I'm just a lucky son of a gun, I think. A lot of filmmaking is about relationships. And I think behaving like other people expect you to behave is the kiss of death. You, you have to be yourself wherever you are in what is called the industry. Sometimes, you know, people talk to me, they say, oh, what a great career. I think, did I have a career? I'm not sure. Every time I decided I had a career, it all turned to shit. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> because a career 's got this idea that you start here and then you go there and you do that and you do this and you then no, in no, no, and it 's going to lead to some magnificent spot you 've decided you know it, it, all of this is ameliorated um, if you have a purpose, so you see what drove me was the purpose I had a purpose to be a filmmaker from making the first film that I made in the psychiatric hospital, I had to deliver this little film to a bunch of people who thought they were in a Christmas play, so they needed <laughs> an audience, and I had to deliver this film to them um, because that's what I could offer. and uh, Because it wasn't a play, they were institutionalized, so it had to be a film. So. Yeah, the purpose will help. Mm.
0: Can we, since you've brought that up, because the really extraordinary part of your life is after you finished art school and you ended up in England teaching art therapy at a psychiatric institute and, and beginning your filmmaking career, actually, with all sorts of really interesting people. It's an amazing... Can you just talk a little bit about that time and what it taught you about storytelling? Because it's an unexpected route into filmmaking, in a way, isn't it? But also, there's immense freedom in what you were doing.
1: You know, they always said New Zealand was a cultural desert. I was growing up in a really vibrant art community, um, in Greymouth and then in Napier, and then later on in Christchurch at art school. I mean, it, it was incredibly Creative, it was crazy, no boundaries. Mm. But it wasn't. It wasn't professionalized. It was amateur in the best sense of the word. Mm. It's a great word, amateur. Um, and so, when I when I was at art school, I, you know, i been in. I'd I'd basically done quite a lot of acting, um, drawing a lot of things as young people do. And when I got to art school, I just embarked on a huge argument about the narrative in painting. So I was wanting to tell stories from the beginning and narrative modernist painting was not acceptable at Eilham School of Art in 1966 when I was there. If I'd gone to, If I'd come up here to Elam, it would have been fine. So I already had a sort of story argument going. And then I got a job, so I didn't graduate, so I got a job in a little psychiatric day hospital in Christchurch where psychiatry is all about stories. It's all about trying to understand someone else's story. You know, that's... And the stories aren't acceptable stories. There are all sorts of stories. So I learnt really a lot in that little psychiatric day hospital in Christchurch. So when I went to England, I was already interested in psychiatry and so I got a job as the assistant librarian at at what was then a county asylum um, outside Cambridge in the UK and again, I was just sitting there in the library and people were telling me stories and some of them were the the superintendent of the hospital and some of them were people in florid psychosis. Um, Yeah, I thrive on, on stories. One of my favorite
0: parts of your book actually is the way you describe sitting underneath the table while your mother and her friends talk and have tea. And you're under the tablecloth looking at the knees and, and the shoes of all the women as they just talk about their lives. And it f- feels so much like the seeds of story were with you from there, from the things you could hear and imagine, from what they were saying and the lives you could construct.
1: Oh secrets. Yes, yeah, secrets. Little kids, they wanna know what everybody's not telling them. I, you know, and I was no different. I think you know, children know, they know what they don't know, but they don't know it. <laughs> so you've, so you've got to, got to listen. Yeah. And getting under the table drawing was quite a good way to do it, because I could hear outrageous things.
0: And they forgot you were there because you were so quiet.
1: Yeah. So so I get shooed out from under the table, um, and but I got back on my mother because I made a film. I got to the bottom of all those secrets and I made a film with her. You, you, you do not want to have a filmmaker in the family. <laughs> it's nearly as bad as an author.
0: <laughs> um, I wondered if you would read an excerpt from your time as a child, listening to the radio for stories and you were listening to a show called Simon and the Gang and radio was really your main entertainment, wasn't it, that you would listen l- listening to stories.
1: So would you pick up from there in your book I was a radio kid, oh my goodness, and that big old Columbus in the corner of our kitchen. I really just wanted to climb into that radio. Um, And they had, you know, they had housewives choice. And I was at home on my own. So my brother was at school, the big kids at school, my father at at work in the fish and chip shop. So uh, everybody doing housework Like, housework was hard work in those days. It's easy to forget, but you know, they had to boil the copper and they had to to sand the bench. It was really important in terms of keeping everybody alive. I was sort of benignly ignored, so I'd just make things up. (laughs) So I would fill my days visiting the neighbors Mrs. Bone and Jack live next door at number 12, and I preferred Mrs. Bone's pikelets recipe, because we had a neighbor down one end of the street who was very fond of bran scones, and if she was making bran scones, I wasn't going down there. (laughs) Mrs. Bone's place was a a bran-free zone. One morning, I'm licking the bowl over in her kitchen, having timed my visit perfectly, Mrs. Bone is doing the dishes, and the satisfying smell of cooling, fresh pikelets is wafting around. Apropos of nothing much, I say, oh, Simon came into the shop yesterday. This is the kind of thing my father says to Tui and Elsie when he comes home at night from the fish and chip shop. He washes his hands before dinner and tells Tui, who came into the shop that day, and Tui says, what did they say? And Ed tells her the news. Simon who, says Mrs. Bone vigorously scouring a pan. Simon, from Simon and the gang. Mrs. Bone puts the pan on the draining board and turns to give me her full attention. This is a welcome reaction. I'm not just prattling at the backs of people who've had their hands in dishwater or who are sandpapering wood in the shed. This is total attention of a kind I'm not used to. Diddy, Simon, from the children's session, yeah. Mrs. Bone pauses for a moment and fixes me with a quizzical expression. What did he look like? (laughs) No problem. I haven't actually met Simon, but I know exactly what he looks like. He's got blonde hair and freckles and glasses and he, and he rides a two-wheeler. <laughs> Mrs. Bone opens the French doors between the kitchen and the sitting room where old Jack sits in his big easy chair in the sun reading his newspaper. Jack, come and have a listen to this. Tell Jack. So I do. Old Jack Bone stands in the doorway holding the morning news with the hole in his gray sock that has his nailed big toe poking through, he has a funny little smile on his face that I find encouraging. (laughs) I embellish. (laughs) Well, I never, they both say, more or less in unison, then Mrs. Bones serves the pikelets, perfect. I've found the thrill of the audience, and I will never look back. I love telling fibs, whoppers. It didn't occur to me till years later that Mrs. Bone would have known I was making it up. As it happens, making stuff up has become my life's work. I've spent my adult life thinking about stories and their power. Point of view is everything. We're all heroes in our own tales. Two children brought up in the same home can tell very different versions of their upbringings. For one, it was a happy childhood. For the other, it was purgatory. This isn't only about relationships, but it was also about the way that memory is deeply colored by emotional response and point of view. How a story is first told can easily become what is known as fact. The stories we tell ourselves, we call them our memories, but half the time, we are really remembering how we chose to tell the stories in the first place. Thank you.
0: Uh, can you talk about, in writing this book, what you left out and why? <laughs> because it's a huge book, and it is an absolute romp through your life in film, but there, you can feel this abyss of other life that you have chosen not to put in there. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I I think it's all about the frame. You know, you start writing, I mean I started writing this completely by accident when I was at Cambridge. Um, I I had been invited there uh, to Jesus College in order to think and reflect. And um, so I went there without a project. And once I was in Cambridge because of I started writing about the first film in, at Full Hospital. And once you start writing, you think you're gonna be writing about yourself, but an autobiography is about everybody else. In a way, you're not there. It's the people you are, it's everybody else you're writing about. Um, and how you write about them is who you are in, in your book. So, uh, you know, the frame sometimes is like a helicopter and sometimes is right there under the kitchen table. And what you choose to tell, I mean, there are plenty of um, memoirs written that are sort of payback memoirs. Um, filmmakers are particularly keen on doing that because, you know, we are a paranoid, damaged bunch. Um, (laughs) Names will be named. Well, Well, you know, I don't think that gets a good result. You know, I do it, but it doesn't work. It's like being the director and crying on set. You know, having a tantrum. Men can do that, but women can't. Just don't. Writing an autobiography is about where you're gonna leave room. And I think this book is a social history of me and what it's about is a personal account of a professional life in a way. It's actually about me giving myself permission to make a film Mm -hmm. and then standing my ground um, when troubles come, and the snakes appear. So, so that's, it's not a, so it's a private, personal, it's a, it's a personal account of a public place, rather than a personal account of a very private space. Mm. So the private space is left alone, but it's all about framing. It's how, where you put the frame. So it's, it's like making a film, it's where you put the frame. Mm. And the frame will decide what. what is told. And then if you put the frame in the right place, what you're saying can be very honest, clear, useful. If you put the frame in the wrong place, people start, interu- people start appearing <laughs> when they shouldn't and you're telling them to go away all the time while you're writing. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I have to leave room for um, my daughter to write her one. I'm not writing my daughter's life in there, and my various relationships. I'm not. I'm not a- about to say this was Mr. Wrong. He was the one. No.
0: What is really what I found really compelling in your book um, about choosing to tell stories at certain moments, I think particularly lands with Tui and Ed's, your parents' stories about the war. It wasn't possible to tell Tui's story, really, until Ed was gone, and it wasn't really possible to tell Ed's story in Home by Christmas until he was gone. There's there's something about being in the right moment and I wondered what needed to be in place for you to tell your own story. What were the conditions that allowed it to be now at this time?
1: My mother sense. was still alive when I told her war story because she's in the film she got, and she got to see it mm. um, and it was terrifying for her and I was totally ruthless, really. In, in the way I brought her to the screen by giving her complete choice whether she was gonna be in it or not and giving her complete choice about whether she could pull out, knowing that she wouldn't quite be able to do that. Um, (laughs) When it came to my father's story, that had to be told after my mother died Mm. uh, because um, she wouldn't have been able to cope with that Mm. So, because she was so grief-stricken. Uh, she wouldn't even listen to his tapes, but as far as me goes, I don't care what anybody says. It's, a, it's a, for grabs. I mean, maybe people don't want to say anything. I've written that for for anybody who's interested in watching the films and knowing a bit about how they were made and who the person was at the time that made them, because we have many lives, don't we? Mm. You know the the th- the 35-year-old the who fought tooth and nail to make Mr. Wrong is not the person who made War Stories, is not the person who made My Year with Helen. You know, we, we change. And so I don't care, anybody can do anything. The films are there the books there, Winston Churchill said, history will view me kindly because I intend to write it. <laughs> 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 and and I, I, you know, they leave me out of the, the, the books they write about, New Zealand film, they leave me out. And then they ring me up at the last minute and say, quick, quick, have you got a photo? So, I'm not a key part of the official history. Um, of New Zealand film. If you read the, the histories of New Zealand films and the autobiographies written by fellow filmmakers, that I'm not really there, but I was there. How, how do you And now you'll it? know I was there.
0: <laughs> how do you feel about that mission? How do you feel about...
1: Oh, I'm not alone. Women get written out all the time you know, it's hard enough to do the work and then you find that somehow the work's floated off downstream and it's not in the 10 best or the most favourite thing or the and the work's floated downstream. Is I don't mind me floating downstream. I'm going to float downstream apparently. I know this, but I don't accept it. However, the films, that, that was a lot of work and it was on behalf of not just me. So... I don't want that work to float downstream. So now the work is there. It, it's now on New Zealand on screen. So this book is a part of a bit of a mission. Um, the work is now a legacy project mm. at Nartonga, and you can go on the Nartonga site and read uh, the, the process of doing it by Danny Bultitude, the archivist. Beautiful, beautiful account. Um, and the work is now on New Zealand on screen mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was me being bullshy because the work belongs to investors and I just said no, it's going to be free to the New Zealand public. The, the bulk of the work has public money in it one way or another in partnership with private investors. And, That's going up there for free. It's for the New Zealand people, and if they want to watch it, they can. At the moment, I'm working with the artist Dame Robin White, and we're collaborating on a feature documentary that's going to be a visual poem um, based around her work and revealing the devastation over the last 300 years of the Pacific. And it's called Grace, and it's a lament for the past, and it's a prayer for the future. Yeah, and and I have to say that Robin is a great artist in terms of the world. And I'm very happy to be a part of amplifying that work. So that's my mission, see?
0: (laughs) I would like to ask you to read again from your book. I love this part of the book where you talk about, um, we've talked about you falling in love with story and what story means to you, but falling in love with oral histories, which has become a real foundation of your work and a really Gaylene Preston aspect of who, like I associate oral history and those beautiful untold stories with you, as I'm sure many people do. And there's a really amazing part of the book where you're back from England and you're working for Pacific Films, actually as an art director, and you go and interview a, a, a surviving soldier from the Second, Second World War, I think it is. First World War. First World War. War, sorry. And it's such a, would you read it and then we could just talk a little bit about that. Would that be all right? I feel-
1: that habit of overhearing it 's never gone away. I mean, I sit in restaurants like that <laughs> um, as I bet a lot of writers do and um, it 's interesting to think about how much does get formed when you 're very little, and I was overhearing and i wasn 't supposed to, and I was hearing secrets and i 'm still i 'm still really it 's my bag i 'm still doing the same thing but this is, this, is, um, this is about 1977. I sat in the small house of this old man in his 80s who was living in what had been his family home. The ghost of his wife was ever present as he sat on the gray rug thrown over his ancient couch and told me his experiences of the Battle of the Somme I sat there in that little house with the occasional train woefully passing, listening to his tales of the horror, the blood mixed with mud, and the boys he left behind, as though it had happened only yesterday. I was stunned. He assumed that I knew much more about the whole sorry tale than I did, as he described terrible things. Hearing the stories of death and destruction I found some of what he told me surprising, mysterious, like the fact that no matter how bad it gets, in the icy rain and rancid mud, the bully beef is always hot. (laughs) This is when I fell in love with oral histories. When When the teller hits the present tense, you can tell that they're right there, pure memory. I'm transfixed, barely daring to move. Checking that the little cassette tape is recording: you're such
0: a um, visceral listener, aren't you? like it's you listen with your whole body. There's something that you say you talk about the the dead, the dead wife being alive in the you know feeling her ghost in the room and feeling history alive, and you say it again when you're talking about the documentary you made about the Napier earthquake. You interviewed a young Maori woman called Hana and you say then that you feel, you talk about feeling the hairs on the back of your neck standing up and feeling
1: that the spirits are out walking. Well, um, the interviews, the interviews, I was an art therapist for seven years and worked in group therapy, it was a great time in Britain. It was an anti-psychiatry moment. So there was a lot of group therapy, a lot of listening. So the way that I, that I do an interview isn't, isn't for information. It is actually for the psychological, spiritual. We don't talk about the spiritual in, in our art as much as we, as we ought or could. Um, because, I don't know, interviews aren't just how did it feel. Um, so making a documentary means that you can give people space and they, everybody brings a spirit. I mean, we brought a spirit to the stage today. You, know, you, you bring people with you. So that spirit needs to be allowed. And, and we have a film culture that doesn't allow it, because it's all about cutting and cut to the chase and get on with it and all of that. So, so that's why war stories were so hard to make, because I wanted to tell the stories one at a time, so everybody gets to tell their story and in their own rhythm, because how we talk is us and how, we think is how we talk and how we, how we experience the world. The, the spirit is very strong in a story.
0: Mm.
1: And the beauty of a film story is you can amplify it as you cut. It's not what people say, it's how they say it. Mm. Yeah. You talk
0: in the book about wanting, about resistance from other people, about wanting to hold a shot and just hold it and hold it to let someone be in space and let them fill up that space. And it's become such a signature of your work, hasn't it? Making the space for a story that we may never have here otherwise, making space for those people, whoever they are.
1: Well, it's pure pleasure Mm. to do that. And I've been very fortunate to be able to do that here. I'm not sure that if I'd left these shores to work elsewhere, I would have had that freedom in the work. I've been able to be as innovative as I like here, and I'm not sure I would have been able to do that anywhere else.
0: Well, I've got to go to questions in the audience now. I haven't even, I've only asked you one thing that I wrote. Oh well. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm gonna open the floor up to questions now. There's mics down here. I don't think there are ones further up. So if anyone wants to ask um, a question, come on down.
1: The role that you took in in promoting a feminist view from the get-go with Mr. Wrong and continued with all your work, is that still alive and well. Uh, New Zealand WIFT is one of the oldest WIFTs in the world. It's um, also, uh, it just had a a major gathering down in Wellington where Philippa Boyan and, and Miranda Harcourt and I were on a panel talking about clambering over the barriers, dealing with the snakes and ladders of it. Um, I think, I think it is, I think it's a very important organisation, WIFT, Women in Film and Television, because it allows, it, it allows that we're there and when political decisions are being made, we're at the table, yeah. Good, I'm glad to hear that, thank you.
0: That reminds me of when you were um, in England, turning up to a women's film group. It was when you sort of crossed swords a little bit with the kind of feminist movement and film over there and you found a woman and her children sobbing outside the meeting that you were going to. Can you tell us that story, just just briefly, because it's just
1: quite, it it says a lot. It's a story about fundamentalism. And and I think fundamentalism is disaster for the human race, whatever the fundamentalism is. Because the barriers are up. We're, we're We're a gang lot and the way we gang is by choosing an other. And fundamentalism makes that very comfortable for people. Um, So there's no more debate going on, it's just fundamentalism. And so being part of the women's liberation movement from, I don't know, 1969, and this is happening in 1974, and I've seen the wonderful, you know, sisterhood is powerful, uh, become divided into camps to the extent that a woman with a man child could be not admitted, he was four, not admitted to the women's house. Um, because there were women in there that might get triggered. It's, it's ha- and it's got, I mean, not just among feminists, it's, these things have got really difficult now. There's um, no
0: nuance, is there?
1: And they affect us all, and they affect us in religions, and they affect us in ethnicities, and. Uh, People people are making fundamentalist camps all over the show. I think it's climate change. (laughs) I do, I think it's climate change. I think we've all gone mad. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we've gone extreme because we're water. So we can't think that because the sea is, the ice is melting, the seas are rising, and we're 80% water, that we are somehow not affected and, you know, compared to the world that I grew up in um, to now, I think, you know, humankind are just going crazy. Hi
0: Gaylene, I'm an emerging writer
1: and director and I'd like to ask you,
0: what would one thing about the New Zealand film industry that you would change that as an
1: emerging filmmaker, I should set about changing? Stop emerging. (laughs) We never had emerging. We didn't do emerging. There's only filmmakers and not filmmakers. <laughs> and if you're a filmmaker, jolly good luck to you for permission to not practise, get cracking, be a real one. Emerging is kind of like some idea that has been imposed, but it's, it's imposed by well-meaning people in, um, in institutions that are f- funding with taxpayer money. They don't have emerging filmmakers in Hollywood.
0: I wanna come back to something you said before where you were talking about uh, listening to people's stories and um, allowing the rhythm of a person to come through, the way that they talk, the energy and the space they fill. And I want to apply that from a technical aspect to your book because the, something that I really love about this book is you read it in the rhythm, I've now realized that you talk. and I haven't, I don't think I've read a memoir like that before. The the pace and the rhythm of the writing is exactly how you speak, and I want to ask how you did that, and I know that your editor was Ashley Young, who's an amazing editor and writer. I want to know how, from a technical point of view, how you went about doing that, particularly because you have not written a book before, scripts, obviously, but how, how did you do that?
1: Rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. I've written scripts forever, but writing a book's really interesting because you've got all these tenses and you've got interior world, um, and, so, and, and actually the words on the page are what is gonna count, whereas a f- script is a blueprint for a movie. So, so it was just rewrite, rewrite, rewrite.
0: Is, did you find it quite a lonely process, writing the book? Because co- filmmaking is, by nature, so collaborative, and it has to be. Sitting on, on your own, writing for s- such length of time, what was that, how did you find that?
1: Oh, lovely. What was it? Oh, yeah, I mean, writing film scripts, you, you only have to have sort of 50 pages, and everybody's, it goes to a committee, and everybody's got their, idea and you're working in quite a noisy space as a writer. Even when you write your own work, you know they have story camps, they're all military names, you know, story camps, boot camp for writers. You know so film writing is quite a different matter and I mean it's wonderful because you're not alone Mm. Um, but I loved writing a book because I was alone and then Ashley turned up and she kind of ironed it yeah. She did. She knew, she knew that if you said a big little thing that it was meant to be a little big thing. Yeah, right. You know, things like that, that made it easier to read. And then I was blessed because Ashley would come round to my house and, and with the changes that she'd made on the chapter, and then I would read what she'd done back to her, and she would adjust as she was hearing it through her ears, so we didn't lose my voice.
0: Oh, that's really, yeah. really unusual. And
1: that was a great process and terribly good food actually bought.
0: <laughs> what kind of food, just of interest?
1: <laughs> oh, really, really, um, you know, kawakawa, fire, tea, and oh. yeah, beautiful.
0: Did you, was your approach to editing this book similar to the way that you edit a film? Because the narrative jumps
1: back and forth in time, it's quite, it chops and moves
0: around quite a lot. I oh, will
1: sometimes, to Ashley's consternation, I'd do that. So I'd say, hey Ashley, why don't we, why don't we take chapter seven and make it chapter three? And she'd go, oh. <laughs> but film editing's quite a different thing because film editing is all about process. So you, you have to have the structure because it's always going to be seen in the same order. The emotional weight's going to always have to land where you put it. Mm. Whereas a book, people will read it from the middle. They'll... Look at the pictures. They'll look at the pictures, they'll... they'll, um, (laughs) A book's a whole different thing. You can read them backwards. (laughs) Um, I very sadly have
0: to wrap this session up. So would you please all join me in thanking Gaylene for her time today?